Good evening. Um, if you haven't met me, my name is Naomi. I'm usually doing the gathering leading and bits and bobs of prayer, but John said, oh, do you want to speak in the summer? There won't be that many people here. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, okay. So I'm very, I'm very um, privileged to speak to you this evening. And as John says, we've been looking at different instances of healing. And when John said, which passage would you like to speak on, this one immediately came to mind. One of my favorites, and it's two for the price of one, isn't it? So very excited to be able to talk to you about that this evening. Um, why don't we, we pray? I'll start my timer so I don't go on for too long and then get started. Okay, Father, I just thank you that you are here and you are in the business of transforming lives. And I just pray that you would speak to us this evening um, and open our eyes to what, what you want to do in our lives. Amen. Amen. So if I was going to uh, give my preacher a title, I would say this uh, is a story of two people united in desperation met with the compassion of Jesus. So I'm going to be talking about the desperation um, and the compassion that they are met with. So I want to just pick out a couple of bits from the story that grabbed me, and then we'll think about some points of application. So first of all, Jairus. We know that he was uh, the leader of the synagogue, um, one of the really important leaders of the synagogue. And it's interesting, isn't it, that he falls at Jesus' feet and implores him to come. His daughter is dying. He says, Jesus, come. Now, Luke makes the point, you might have noticed in the passage, that Jesus had been away. So he's come back to Capernaum and the crowds were waiting. And I wonder if, if Jairus was waiting too. I, you know, we know actually in the passage, don't we, that his daughter does die. So she's very, very sick. And I wonder, in the time that Jesus has been away, if he had been exploring all sorts of options for his daughter's healing, and like the crowds, he was waiting. So Jesus comes back, and Jairus thinks, this is my moment. And he throws himself at Jesus' feet. Now, I was doing a little research, and the Greek word is proshunau, I learned, which means to worship, to fall down in reverence. And so something has happened in Jairus that has convinced him that Jesus is worthy of worship, and Jesus is where the answer for his daughter's healing is. Now, a little bit of context. We know that Jairus was a leader of the synagogue, um, so he would have been wealthy, man of status. He would have had all sorts of things at his disposal to try. It, you know, he would, he would have had money and resources to try sort of all the normal medical routes. We also know that he was likely a Pharisee and therefore um, suspicious of Jesus, maybe even quite disapproving of Jesus. And so it would have taken a huge amount, um, I guess, of personal sort of resolve to come to Jesus. What we conclude from this is that he was desperate. He's likely tried everything, and much as he didn't probably want to, he's decided that Jesus is where the answer is going to be. We also know that he had a household. He was a man of means, so he could have sent somebody else to go to Jesus. And I thought it was quite interesting. We know a couple of verses back in, in Matthew's account, we hear the story of the centurion soldier. If you know that story, centurion comes to Jesus and he says, look, my servant's ill, but I know you're busy. You don't actually need to come. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus likes this. Jesus is like, okay, if you say so. So he heals the servant. So what we know from that is that Jesus doesn't even need to go to see Jairus' daughter. But 
Jairus comes himself. He doesn't send anyone. And he says, you have to come. What this is saying to me is this is a man on his knees before Jesus in desperation. And Jesus sees that and he says, okay, okay. I see your faith will go. So you can imagine Jairus. He's been waiting for Jesus to get back. He's finally caught the attention of Jesus. They're off and there's a distraction, isn't there, on the journey. So as they go through the crowd, they, there they meet this woman. So she's been bleeding for 12 years. Um, and what that would mean in that culture is that she would be ceremoniously unclean. You can read about that in Leviticus 15 if you want, but in, at another time. But essentially what it means is probably after leprosy, it was probably the most shameful condition that you could have in that society, she would have left. She would have probably lived um, as an outcast. She wasn't allowed in the temple. She wouldn't be allowed to touch people, um, and certainly wouldn't have been able to touch Jesus. Um, in Mark's account of the story, she, it talks about how she spent all that she has and was getting worse. And Luke, um, Luke, who writes the chapter that we just um, read, Luke was a doctor, and he was at pains to point out that no one could heal her. So I think the point he's making is that she's incurable. This is pretty bad. So she was also desperate. Jesus was on the way, on the way to meet the need of a desperate man, and he comes right into the path of another desperate woman. So she's tried everything, and I was doing a little bit of research about what one would do if one had a hemorrhage 2,000 years ago, and apparently one of the things she probably had tried that would have been recommended would be carrying the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen bag in the summer and a cotton bag in the winter. Um, another thing that they typically recommended was to carry around barley corn kernel that had been found in the dung of a white female donkey, and many other things, but lots of sort of superstitious remedies that she'd likely tried. Um, we don't know what she did, but all three accounts make it very clear she had tried everything and she wasn't getting any better. Time was running out. It was a moment of desperation, and so she thinks, if only I could touch him. And she was never trying to touch Jesus. She just wanted to touch his garment. But Jesus says, who touched me? Um, and when I was reading about this, the, the word that he uses, it comes from the Greek word, hapto, which means to fasten to or cling. And so when Jesus said, who touched me? The disciples said, well, everyone's touching you. But Jesus is like, no, no, I don't mean who brushed me. I mean who clinged to me with every fiber of their being in desperation, that's what he felt. When he felt her touch the garment, he felt her cling, her desperation. And Jesus says he felt the power go out of her. She was instantly healed. And he felt that clinging. He felt that desperation. So Jesus calls her out from the crowd, doesn't he? He says, who touched me? And nobody answers. And why is that? Well, really, she wanted to be anonymous, didn't she? She didn't, she didn't want everybody to see. It would have been so shameful for her to approach Jesus in that culture, a bleeding woman. That would have been so shameful for her. But also, she didn't want to do that to Jesus. She just wanted her secret healing and to go. But that's why I love this story, because right in the middle, where Jesus is like on, already on a mission, he stops 
And he calls her out of the crowd. So she says it was me. And he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So just a couple of things that I thought was fascinating about that. First of all, he calls her daughter. Now, he's about to heal a little girl who, interestingly, he doesn't call daughter. He calls her girl. It's like he reserves this title for someone who has been outcast. She's been bleeding for 12 years, probably really on the edge of society, probably not called that, you know, that sort of term of endearment, maybe for years. So he calls her publicly daughter. And he says, your faith has made you well. I think he was making the point that it wasn't his garment per se or anything to do with how she touched or what she touched, but it was the faith. And the well that he's referring to, when he says your faith has made you well, it's the word sozo, which we might know in some contexts, but it's this concept of physical wellness, yes, but spiritual wellness, like wholeness. So when he's saying your faith has made you well, he's also saying you are well in yourself, go into wholeness. And then he says go in peace, which really translates better go into peace. And again, I think what Jesus is saying is that in that moment, yes, she's healed, which is amazing, isn't it? But also saved, restored. He's saying, go live your best life. Go live free as a daughter of the king. And I I absolutely love that. In this story, there is like wrapped around this message of healing, yes, but also our salvation, that we are so precious to Jesus, you know, that he would stop in the crowd and call us out. So I absolutely love that. But back to Jairus. So he's watching all of this. And, it, you know, it's probably amazing, isn't it? But you can probably imagine maybe a little frustration as well. When they get to his house, it's too late. People are saying, don't bother the teacher. She's died, you know? Like, don't bother him. And Jesus says to Jairus, don't be afraid. He's saying, just keep holding on a little bit longer. So in Matthew's account, it talks about how the mourners were already present and there was a noisy scene. Luke talks about the wailing. We know in that context, they would typically hire mourners in to sort of support the family. So they'd be wailing and screaming and playing their flutes. Very noisy. And Jesus sends everyone away. He goes in with just three of his disciples and the parents. And I wonder if Jesus wanted to be away from the distractions. He wanted to be in an environment of faith. So he goes in, doesn't he? And he raises the little girl from the dead. So simply, talithakum, get up. Little girl, get up. And then he says, give her something to eat, which I really like. And I, I think Luke probably notes it down because he's a doctor. And I think it's important to him that the readers know it's a physical healing. We're not talking like that she was raised. It's like in a spiritual sense. No, she was, she was living and active because she needed to eat. And I think he was making that point. But I also just love how Jesus cares. You know, that Jesus cares that she would be hungry and that that was important to him. The fact that she was dead was important to him, but the fact that she's peckish is also important. And tonight we're going to be going after healing, and I think one of the things is that Jesus cares. He cares enough to be stopped on his tracks for healing number one, to do healing number two. And he really, really cares that the girl is hungry. And so tonight we're going to be bringing our big and our small, knowing that Jesus really cares. So that's just some of the things that I really thought about with the passage. But what, what two amazing people, Jairus and the woman, 
so different, but united in their desperation and just met with the compassion of Jesus. So I really love the passage because they're so different, the contrast of the two people. And I was thinking about that, the sort of the juxtaposition, first of all, with the gender. Jairus is a male, patriarchal society. Yes, he approaches Jesus in desperation, but essentially as an equal. Man to man, he's saying, look, I need some help here. Whereas the woman, she doesn't, she's not named, is she? No name. It would have been so culturally inappropriate for her to approach Jesus on her own. This outcast woman, I mean, she probably didn't look great. She'd been hemorrhaging for 12 years. She was, you know, a real outcast. Contrast to Jairus, well-respected. He's a man, firstly, like I said, but he's got good standing in the community. He's respected. He's employed. We know he's a family man. So these two people couldn't be more different. And their approach... Jairus, boldly, Jesus, I need you to come. The woman, anonymously, if I can just touch him, no one will notice. So their approach is totally different. And even their request, isn't it? Jairus specifically says, I need you to come and lay your hand. He wanted Jesus to touch her. But she was never even trying to touch Jesus. She was just trying to touch the edge of his garment. So they are such different people, so different. They wouldn't have been bumping into each other in our equivalent, their equivalent of Costa. Like they wouldn't be pals, but yet they're drawn to the person of Jesus in desperation. We know that they both have tried everything. Jairus, we know, had money and status, and we know from the accounts that the woman had tried everything. Jesus was where they found that answer. And I just love the compassion of Jesus in both of these stories. It's like he sees their faith and he meets them there. So I've just been thinking, how might we kind of apply some of the thoughts that we've had from this passage into our lives? Like, what might it mean for us? The first thing that really kind of struck me was Jesus works according to his agenda, doesn't he? Jesus does. We know from Scripture it says that Jesus did what he saw his father doing. We read in Scripture that Jesus would go away. He would go away from his disciples, pray, retreat, and he did what he saw his father was doing. So Jairus and the lady both came to Jesus with their ideas, didn't they? Jairus' idea was for his daughter to be healed, not actually raised from the dead. So he had kind of an agenda, didn't he? What he was looking for. And the lady's agenda, she wanted it to be private. She didn't want to be publicly called out. So they both went to Jesus with their own kind of agenda, what they thought wanted to happen. But that wasn't, that wasn't what Jesus had in mind. Both of those stories, actually, Jesus didn't do they, they got what they wanted. They got the healing, but Jesus didn't do it in the way that they maybe wanted him to do it. And it just made me think, how much do we put our own agenda on Jesus? I think I'm so guilty of this, but I'm sure lots of us are. It's like, oh, someone had a prophetic word, but I didn't really want to go forward. Like, it's a bit embarrassing. Or haven't really got time. So many people have said to me, I really, really wanted you to pray for me that week, but my parking was running out, which I really get. It, I do get that. But... Um, sometimes as well you look at the ministry team and you're like oh I just don't really want like that person to pray for me maybe it's not the right time blah 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 blah. you get what I'm saying I think as well like we get this idea don't we of this is what I think my healing would look like 
But actually, I think there's a call for us to lay down our agenda and run towards Jesus in desperation. And I've been really challenged writing this preach, actually. Um, lots of you know that we've got a daughter, and she's very profoundly disabled, which has you know, been quite a journey. When she was much younger, every altar call, like we were the first up, they would be like, if anyone's got sickness, like we were there every week at church, basically. And then over the years, you kind of, like, you live with it. And you, we are obviously praying for her breakthrough, and we've seen so much breakthrough. But seeing these people in the story, it just made me think, like, maybe God wants to step up our desperation again. And we get quite like, oh, well, I've seen a bit of a breakthrough, or, you know, and that's great. But sometimes I feel like maybe God wants us again to run to him with desperation, laying aside our agenda. So that was one of my thoughts. Second of all, Jesus works according to his time frame. So for Jairus, you know, he didn't really want his daughter to die, did he? He wasn't expecting a raising from the dead. But actually, Jesus wasn't concerned by that. He says to Jairus, don't worry, have faith. So actually, the fact that she had died wasn't a concern for Jesus. And for the woman, I'm sure people would be saying, don't be ridiculous. You've been bleeding for 12 years. Like, clearly, it's not going to get better. You can imagine the narrative, can't you? And I, I just wonder for how, for how many of us in the room, we get used to living with something. And it could be um, a healing issue. It could be a sickness. Or it could just be something in our life where we're like, we're just used to it now. And actually, I just feel like today, the call of God as we lay down our agenda might also be to just lay down our time frame of like, well, it hasn't happened yet, but it could be about to happen. Um, and one of the things that I've been, um, I seem to, I don't know why, but I seem to have favor to pray for people to get pregnant. And we've prayed for a lot of people with fertility issues. And I was kind of didn't want to share this because it's not about me, but I want to share it with you as a point of encouragement. I think I've probably prayed in about 20 babies, I think, for people like people who've been struggling and have had different issues. And it's so easy when you're journeying people with infertility for them to think it will never happen. You know, I've been trying for X number of years and the doctors say it won't happen. And often people are like, oh, and people have prayed for us. And I'm like, yeah, but I haven't prayed for you. Not that it's about me, but just maybe in that moment, maybe in that moment, I've got faith that God is going to do something and he might do it. And so I guess my encouragement today is like, what if, like, what if God wants to move in that thing that you've just got used to having? Or what if God wants to do something in that situation that we've just got a bit like used to? And finally, Jesus is not distracted by the crowd. He is fixed on what his father is doing. So with the lady, the disciples are saying, oh, we were all touching you. And Jesus is like, yeah, obviously I know that. I'm talking about something else. And then when they go to Jairus' house, the crowds are like, don't bother the teacher. Leave him alone. The flutes, the crying. And Jesus steps away from it all into quiet, doesn't he? And it really just got me thinking, who are we listening to? What voice are we listening to? And we really journey this with our daughter, Isla, because... I think when you've got a child um, with quite like, long-term complex needs, if you kind of say you want to pray for that, I think people are like, oh, but that's how she is. So you're saying that she's not good enough. And there's a, it's kind of this whole thing that you've got to walk a little bit with people. 
But it just made me think, whose voice are we listening to um, in our faith? What are we allowing to distract us? It might be our friends, our family, social media. I think our challenge is to fix our eyes on what Jesus is doing, to, on what Jesus is saying. We know that he has power to heal. We know from this story that his heart is for people to have complete wholeness, not just physically, but spiritually. And I think that we allow ourselves to get distracted so often, don't we? Just a small example in my life today. We always get the paper at the weekend. We always have, me and Rich, brioche, Saturday papers. Since we've had the kids, there's a little less reading of the articles, but we always do it. I think we're the only young family that gets the papers delivered at ENC side to our room. Um, and today I just saw that it was all about the nurse um, and the babies, and I flicked through and there were 10 pages, and I just put it in the bin because I just was like, I can't, I can't fill my mind with that. That's not to say it's not important news. It, it is, and, and we need to know about these things. But for me, in that moment, someone who spends a lot of time with my daughter in medical situations, I was like, I need to not get distracted by that, and I need to fix again on what I feel like God is doing in my family, and what does Jesus say for my daughter? And I'm not saying that we all have to burn the papers and whatnot, but I just think, for me, I was like challenged, what am I being distracted by, and what might Jesus be saying to me? So, I don't know if any of that is helpful, but hopefully I've just shone a light for you on two really different people. They couldn't be more different, but yet united in desperation for Jesus and met with his really just profound compassion.